Welcome to the Activist Insight Podcast, Beyond the Boardroom, a supplement to our monthly podcast, which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. Here we discuss shareholder activism with some of the industry's top experts. I'm Ilana DeRay, a financial reporter with Activist Insight, and today we are chatting about M&A activism with Paul Shulman and David Whistle from McKenzie Partners. In September, Activist Insight published the special report M&A Activism 2019 in association with McKenzie and Skadden. The report showed that M&A activism is more popular than ever, with one-third of dedicated activists' targets publicly subjected to M&A-related activist demands in the first half of 2019. In North America, activists typically advocate M&A more than they oppose it, though 18 U.S.-based companies had their deals opposed in the first six months of the year, the highest number since at least 2013. Paul and Dave, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you on. To start off, I'd like to turn to you, Paul. We know that more traditional asset managers are speaking out about M&A. What challenges does this present, and how should companies get out ahead of it? Well, we certainly are seeing it more more frequently. We've seen recently firms like uh, Tiro Price and Wellington coming against transactions. You know, I don't, I don't think we expect it to be commonplace for either those two funds to speak out on on every deal they don't like, or even for that to spread to, to other funds more sort of more widely. You know, I think it only will be in, in really big campaigns where the deal has a real sort of material economic impact on the portfolios and ones where they see the deal is particularly egregious. If we're just talking about a couple of pennies, I don't see. You know, I don't, I don't think there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of activism against it. There's just a tremendous amount of effort that those funds have to go to internally with their compliance groups, making sure that every single portfolio manager is involved. There's sort of the reputation that gets out there publicly. And I would, I would frankly suspect that any decision to go out publicly probably has to go all the way up to the top of those firms. So uh, a lot of the challenges when one of those funds does come out is certainly obviously they have more credibility than the typical Johnny Come Lately activist that we've, that we've used to be seeing. You know, they've likely held the stock for a longer period of time the typical activist, they've been involved with management through up cycles and down cycles in the stock. They've had the opportunity to give management their perspective on the strategy. And, you know, if you look at the other funds that, that are assessing the, the, uh, the impact of the, of the activism, they understand the higher bar that these funds have had to go through. And it's not just a game of chicken like an activist is playing. So, you know, how do companies, how do companies deal with it? It may sound cliche, but I think it's just you know, companies are doing a better job of engaging with their shareholders, but they need to be more involved in bringing M&A into the conversation, explaining whether or not they think a big transformative deal needs to needs to happen or whether or not some kind of consolidation just doesn't make sense. So it really is just doing a better job of reaching out to shareholders about M&A and also getting their, their feedback. Now, Dave, how can an activist effectively put pressure on a company to sell without appearing short term? So I think I think you hit on an interesting concept there in the sense that if activists lead with the sell the company thesis um, that we've become familiar with over the last few years, that they're often perceived as short term and not having the best interests of all shareholders in mind. The challenges that an activist can face in that situation is that if the company decides to commit to running a strategic alternatives process, um, the activist thesis is very easily countered. Um, and it also just suggests generally that the activist isn't really open to other alternatives. They have one goal in mind, whether or not that's ultimately the best thing for the company. So in order to actually counter that, um, one of the things that an activist 
activists can do uh, maybe a little bit more subtly is just hint that the company is facing um, secular challenges, industry challenges, um, and might be better off either as part of a larger whole um, or just as a private company outside of the glare of the public markets. The other thing that the activists can do in that situation is actually kind of adopt a private equity approach. And we've seen this a few times in the recent past with, with Elliott and others, is that they can actually submit a bid for the company themselves, either because their ultimate interest is owning the entirety of the business or simply to kind of kickstart the process and, and invite further bidders. On the flip side, how can companies deflect pressure to sell themselves? So I think they can do that in two areas. Uh, the first one, again, sounds very cliche, is to have a company that's built up a relationship of trust and transparency with the shareholders so that you have a board and management team that doesn't have to publicly announce a strategic review process for shareholders to trust that, they've, that they're doing the right thing. You know, shareholders should understand that the board is not opposed to a deal, it's just the right deal. But secondly, and sometimes companies wait until after a deal is announced or, or, or an activism is announced to go out with a strategy. This should be something that's an ongoing process. Shareholders should have been communicated the strategy, understand what, what management expects out of that strategy. There are tangible milestones that they can be measured against um, and that they've, you know, that the shareholders have been bought into the process and been able to give their, uh, their perspective on it. So it's number one, building up a relationship and shareholders understanding what, what the company's strategy is you know, as, 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 a, um, as a counter to a deal. Dave, why are opposition to M&A campaigns on the buyer side becoming more common? So I think to a certain extent, there's a perception in the marketplace that we're kind of nearing the latter innings of an M&A cycle. And in this case, the you know, valuations are maybe becoming a little bit stretched. The, the universe of companies that are you know, susceptible to M&A activity is kind of becoming smaller and increasingly so. As a result, I think activists overall are probably more focused on pushing companies into a sale and using that as a lever to create value. So when a company that is perceived to be a good acquisition target tries to go out and buy someone, that can ultimately form the basis of a campaign from the activist. Um, and I think the other thing to kind of keep in mind throughout all this is that the activism on the buyer side is really often just one piece of the puzzle for the activist. Um, while they might be long the buyer, they might also be short the target as well, um, just to give them a little bit more optionality and to, um, to manage risk as well. Paul, why is it so hard to derail a deal? Are activists getting any closer? I, I, frankly, I don't actually think it's that hard. If you look at the number of failed deals, by purely by the numbers, yes, you would say they have a tough time. But ultimately, you really got to look at what is the activist aim? Are they really looking to bust up the deal or are they just using the campaign to try and get, get better terms? So if you actually look at the number of deals with an activist either making a case against the industrial logic of the deal or the economics, the number of deals that actually get renegotiated and finally get approved that number is actually a lot higher. Also, I think the bar is really low for activists to have a credible effect on a, uh, on a transaction. They can just put a statement out in the 13D filing, file a letter in the press release, or they can go all the way to a proxy fight. Obviously, the more detail as to why the deal is not a good one uh, certainly helps their cause, but even just a fairly vanilla statement in a 13D filing that the, the activist doesn't think the deal is, is delivering enough value for shareholders creates a whole cascading uh, series of events where you know, ISS may reach out and talk to, to the activist, the company may have to put together a deck and go out and talk to shareholders and the activist. And so without much effort, an activist can create a lot of havoc in a deal 
and ultimately you can actually get a deal renegotiated or kill again. Now, private equity firms and activists are increasingly borrowing from each other's playbooks. Does an activist's ability to make a credible offer to the target company increase its effectiveness? And do you expect this trend to continue? Yeah, so this is something we've been seeing from time to time over the last few years. You know, again, going back um, to what I was saying earlier, I think Elliot is probably the most notable proponent of this, uh, but there are others as well. That being said, I think the universe of activist funds that are actually capable of buying the entirety of a public company um, and willing to do so is incredibly small. And on the flip side, if you look at the private equity funds themselves, the vast majority of them are actually prohibited from engaging in this kind of activist activity as part of the limited partnership agreement. So I don't think we're really in danger of seeing them um, encroach on the activist turf in that sense. But um, to your question, yes, absolutely. If an activist is able to make a bid for a company, I think that kind of changes the posture of the board and management team in, in responding to that activist and probably does increase their credibility, at least to the extent that the activist's ultimate goal is actually to see the company sold. But the the issue with that strategy from the activist perspective is that it does carry with it a lot of risk because certainly you have the question of do these activists really want to own the entirety of the company? What happens if they actually are, are forced to kind of go through with that transaction? You know, that may not be the ultimate goal. They may just want to see any kind of value maximizing transaction, whether they own it or not. So we haven't seen that many bumpetrage campaigns this season. Paul, do you think bumpetrage is dying out? I don't think it's dying out. I, you know, I think the, the universe of funds that are willing to buy into a stock after the deal's announced and try to push for better terms is, is pretty limited. Most of the people, most of the funds that buy in are the arbitrage funds who are buying in purely to capture the merger consideration and the prospect of a deal getting getting crushed and the stocks falling afterwards. It, it's sort of, you know, there, there's got to be a risk tolerance. And you have, you have funds like Call Icon who have a history of doing this and have been successful. Um, but mo- most of the funds that buy in after. So I, I, I think there is, there has been, um, there haven't been many uh, bump trash campaigns this year. I don't know going back if, if that, you know, what sort of the comparison is to last year. I don't, I don't think you see them generally a lot. But I think, it, uh, frankly, I think a lot of it has to do just with the, the, the limited number of funds that are willing to, to, to do bump trash. You know, we, we may see deals next year, we may see deals in the future. Uh, I don't think we'll see a lot as we have in the past. What can we expect from M&A activism moving forward? Are there specific sectors and or regions that are particularly vulnerable? So I think the interesting thing about M&A activism is that it works in a variety of different market conditions. And certainly over the next 12 to 18 months, there are a lot of variables um, that could dictate which which way the market goes. We could see M&A activity accelerate. We could see it decline pretty considerably. As long as there's a reasonable baseline of volume, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity out there for activism, whether that's targeting the buyer side when valuations are becoming stretched, or if the general market activity is pretty muted, trying to push companies into a sale just to kind of pick up the pennies around those deals. I think there are a lot of opportunities out there for activists, and regardless of which way the, the markets go, um, I think they'll be there. And I think as far as, as well, I think as far as sectors go, I think just um, by virtue of the fact that there have been so many deals in the space. We've done a lot of deals in the energy space this year. Um, and I think just the, the commodity cycle and oil prices being so low and, and the fact that shoulders have just suffered through a sustained period of time with poor returns in that, uh, in that sector. 
uh, we've just seen a lot of a lot of activism against deals. And so, you know, some of it might just be the fact that companies have held the, the, uh, the funds have held the stock for a long period of time and think they're being picked off at a, at a low point in the cycle. Um, but you know, I, I think as long as there's volatility in, in the commodity sector, um, you'll, you'll probably continue to see activism there. That was Paul Shulman and David Whistle of McKenzie Partners. That's it for this episode of the Activist Insight Podcast, Beyond the Boardroom. If you would like to join us on a future episode, or if you have any comments or questions, please email press at activistinsight.com. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Ilana DeRay. Thanks for listening.